You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. This episode of Market Champions is brought to you by Simplify ETFs. For more information, visit simplify.us. No simplified funds will be discussed during this podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Market Champions today. I've got my friend Ben Claremont, Principal and Portfolio Manager at Cove Street Capital, a value strategy-focused investment firm based in California. Ben's here to present Lionsgate, LGF.A, that's the ticker, and the, and the case for being long, Lionsgate. So Ben, thank you so much for being on the podcast. The presentation that Ben's about to use, you can find that in the show notes or in the description if you're on YouTube. And you know, let's, get, uh, let's get started with it. I'm really excited to jump in to this talk. And you know, we're going we're gonna to have some Q&A at the end as well. And you know, just talk a little bit about you know, some of the other things that uh, some of the, just dig a little, just, just dig a little bit deeper into this company. So, you know, with that, let's get started. Well, sure. And thanks. Thanks again for having me on the show. Um, you know, it's, I know it's not customary for your guests to put together a presentation, but personally it helps me frame the discussion. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm honored, it, it that you, I'm, I'm honored that you, yeah. you put in the work to put, uh, put together a presentation. Yeah. So I'm really happy. Well, it, it's some, it's somewhat self-serving. Um, but also if, if anybody's interested in this presentation, um, happy to, happy to share it and, and hopefully we'll put it in the show notes as well. Um, so the topic of the discussion today is Lionsgate and the title of this presentation is this time is underlined different at Lionsgate. Uh, so always have to start with a safe harbor. Um, our disclosure, uh, Cope Street does own Lionsgate shares. It is a recent addition to our portfolio. Um, so in a lot of ways, I've followed this company and you know the, the content media content industry for years. But I am by no means like you know an expert on Lionsgate to the degree that maybe my, some of my colleagues are. Um, my, my our founder has followed this company for like 15 years, so you know the deep, deep nuances in the history. He will he'll be a little more um, well versed in. But I think I can give a really good overview about why we own it. Um, but as always, this is not um, advice, uh, and it is not an offer to buy or sell a security. So um, do your own work, and 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 please read our safe harbor. So uh, I always like to talk, give people a sense of where we're going um, and before we get in. So um, I'm just gonna give a quick overview of a presentation uh, before we get into Q&A, of course. Um, so just a little bit about myself and about Cove Street. Uh, I'm gonna talk a little bit about Lionsgate. If, if I call it LGF, it's just, I get tired of saying a lot on Lionsgate. So if you, if you hear me saying LGF, I'm, I'm talking about Lionsgate. Uh, I'm gonna go over our contrarian investment premise, premises, I guess, and, and what we're thinking that the market may not be thinking. Um, what we think has changed over the last few years, uh, because a lot of the people I talked to have this very backward looking view of Lionsgate. And they're like, well, this happened in 2017. And I'm like, well, it's, it's been four years. And we have a sense that a lot has changed internally at the company since then. Um, and then we're gonna get into the very messy, complicated subject of what is Lionsgate worth? And you'll see a number of slides on that. And it is, um, a little bit of a painful endeavor because it is a complicated business or set of businesses. Um, as always, I'm a value investor, so I, I do a good job of arguing against myself. Um, so there's, you'll see like where we can be wrong and the risk factors associated with investing in this business. Um, and then I'm going to share contact information uh, and, and we'll go into Q&A and I may uh, provide a shameless uh, podcast plug for my own podcast, which is called Compounders. Uh, so just a little bit about myself. I'm in uh, my, I've been on the show before, so you, you go back and listen to the, the original um, interview we did to learn a little more about my background, but um, I've been at Coast Street since 2011. Uh, we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary as a firm. Um, I am a co-portfolio manager on our SMIDCAP strategy, and um, before um, before Coast Street, I was at UCLA Anderson for business school, and before that, I worked on the buy side um, in New York at a couple of different hedge funds. Um, and uh, some people may remember the investment blog called the Inoculated Investor. Um, that was kind of how I got my, one of the things that kicked started my career in the investment industry. Um, and I've moved from blogging to being a podcast host. 
So Cove Street, uh, just very briefly about Cove Street. So we are located in sunny El Segundo, California. We're 100% employee owned. We have about $700 million done under management. We're a long only firm. We run concentrated portfolios, uh, mostly think SMID, um, anywhere from SMID to, to micro. Uh, so basically three strategies, small, SMID and micro, uh, all value, um, different flavors of value, I would say. I mean, I lean very kind of like high quality, high return investment capital, what we call Buffett stocks. Um, our small cap strategy is kind of a mix of what we call Graham and Buffett stocks. So good businesses trading at reasonable prices and then mediocre businesses trading at it in, in really large discounts to intrinsic value. Um, but whatever we do, we have three investment pillars, business value, people, and you will see throughout this presentation that I, you know, I, I highlight those, like those are the, the topics of the conversation. Um, we, <laughs> I produce a lot of content, Coastry produces a lot of content. So if you want to go to coastrycapital.com uh, and go to our thoughts tab, you'll see a lot of um, different stuff from us. We're, we're really transparent um, and, and you can learn a lot about our philosophy and our firm and, and hear from the different members of the team if you, if you uh, go to our website. So let's quickly go through through Lionsgate, uh, run through some numbers. Uh, the market caps a little a shade under 3.1 billion. Well, this was as of a couple of days ago. Um, total debts around two and a half billion. So net and about, they have about 261 million in cash. So call it like you know uh, you know just a little over two billion dollars in net debt. Um, enterprise value is about 5.6 billion. Um, TTM revenue is about 3.35 billion. Uh, doesn't pay a dividend. Uh, and debt, which is something we'll talk about on a, on a trailing basis, is about 4.7 times, which is a lot higher than it, than things that I typically like to invest in. Um, you'll see a little note here if you're you know watching the presentation that um, that number is actually 3.6 times if you exclude the investments in Stars International, which we'll also get into. Um, I don't like to do that. That money's going out the door. I don't want to make an adjustment based on <laughs> on management's thought of like, hey, we're losing money here, so you should not count it. Um, but still, you know, four four to five times leverage is, is kind of on the higher end of things that I would like to go to like to invest in. But I'll talk about why we don't think that's a really big issue. So uh, three segments uh, at Lionsgate, and so let me um, let me just go quickly through them. So the first segment is the motion picture segment. This is the movie studio that generates revenue through at the beginning of the of the of the pay windows, the theatrical releases. Then it goes to home entertainment, uh, and then they also license um, license the content to television and, and international um, uh, content players. Um, the film library, if you think about what, what Lionsgate is and the movies they have in their library, you know, some of the newer ones, John Wick, Twilight, Hunger Games, Saw is one of their franchises, um, and, and Dirty Dancing as well. Um, and they're also bringing back Dirty Dancing um, for, for to in, 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 I think, the next year and a half. Um, so that'll be interesting. But just, you know, they have a 17,000 uh, title library when you include film and TV. And management gives you a sense of what that library generates in revenue. So on a trailing 12-month basis, um, that the just the library by itself has generated about $740 million in revenue. And they cl management claims that the cash flow margins on that revenue are, are, are 50%. So a nice drop down to the bottom line. Um, and so, so that's the first segment's motion picture. Second segment is television production. So this is the TV studio that creates content for stars, which is one of their properties, but also licenses their content to linear TV players, AVOD and SVOD players. Um, and if you want to know like, like what have they created, um, Weeds and Mad Men were both uh, Lionsgate um, properties um, that have been licensed out to other players. Um, they now deliver about 34 series to various partners. Um, and they're actually seeing new demand for, for content from the AVOD players. But, you know, traditionally, whether it's Netflix or, you know, Apple, they're, you know, they're licensed, they, they create shows to, to license to, the, to those other content players. And this was a business that um, generated about $1.5 billion in revenue in fiscal year 2021. But just to make sure we're all talking the same numbers, that part of that revenue is in, uh, um, is it overlaps with the library revenue. So when they give you a library revenue number, that's for film and TV. So this it gets to like one of the co most complicated parts about valuing this business is like what's the library content, but what versus like what's being produced right now. Um, the last segment is media networks, and that's basically stars and the stars international business. 
Um, you may recall that Stars was a publicly traded company. It was controlled by Liberty Media. Um, uh, Lionsgate bought Stars from, from Liberty uh, in 2016 for about $4.4 billion. Keep that number in mind as you see our, our sense of what the business is worth today. Because, um, you know, uh, I think we're taking a much more conservative view than management took in 2016 about what Stars is worth. And so what is Stars? Stars is a premium, most now it's kind of mixed between linear, a premium linear TV subscription. So you can, so if you, if you subscribe to the cable bundle, you have a choice of, of premium channels, you can do HBO, you can do Showtime, but you know, Stars is one of the options as well. So there's that. And they also have a D2C business, um, which has been growing pretty rapidly um, and has recently flipped where they have more D2C customers than, than linear TV customers. And so um, in terms of total streaming customers, they have about 16.7 million globally um, and total international is about 7 million subs. So, um, you know, out of, out of the 29 million of 7 million outside the US, they're hoping to get to 50 to 60 million over the next few years, which would be almost a doubling of what they have now. Um, it is an ambitious goal. I think we have our own concerns about whether that will be achieved, um, you know, but I, I think, it, that's the management pitch, uh, and, and and you know we can assess whether that's likely or not, and, and value it appropriately. Um, and one thing to note, as I as I did mention, uh, the, the the media network segment, which is mainly stars, the profitability of that segment has been crushed by the fact that they're spending, they're losing 140 million dollars a year in, in international spending, which which means that they're probably spending they're spending a lot more. That's just like <laughs> that's that's the uh, that's the operating loss. So they're spending a lot to build international D2C. It's been growing fast, but but of course, if you're losing money, you can grow subs. That's that's not that's pretty intuitive. So the question is, can it ever become profitable? So let's move on to what we're thinking that um, we think the market may not be appreciating. So the first thing is the the backward looking comments that we have. Uh, that we hear from people when we discuss Lionsgate, one of them is, well, you know, like these are the guys that turned down a $40 bid from Hasbro in 2017. Um, and, you know, if they weren't going to sell then, why in the world would they sell when the stock is 13 or $14? And it's, it's a fair point, but um, as, as I'll show, because underperformed to this degree over the last five-year period, it is our sense that there are certain things on the table that may not have been maybe back in 2017. The other thing we hear is Mark Rachesky, um, who is basically the controlling shareholder. Um, he, his firm is MHR, um, MHR Management. And you know, there's this idea that the, he's just never sell bro and he doesn't, you know, he's never gonna sell it and he's gonna hold it in his portfolio forever. And, and he controls the company. So even if someone wanted to buy it, you know, they couldn't do it because they couldn't get through Rachesky. Um, we think that is a misunderstanding of, of um, and you know, and we're, we're located in LA and Lionsgate's in LA. So we, I think we have a little bit of an edge in terms of like industry contacts and people who know the company really well. And it's our sense that that is not the case that he's like someone who would not sell the shares. And that's, and, and he's just like, this is his, this is his forever asset. Um, the other thing to note is this is a Vancouver-based company. So um, while we'll get into this, but while Rachesky controls the voting shares, in the case that there was a takeover offer, the A and B shares both have one vote per share. So in that, in that way, he doesn't control anywhere near as much of the vote as he as he would um, um, if it, it was if, if it was if it wasn't a takeover offer. So that's another thing that that people say there's no way this company could be sold. But you have to remember that, that the, the rules in, in in British Columbia and Canada are a little different. So the other thing is there's I don't think there's no way to disagree with the con the, the concept that there is insatiable demand for content, right? Like think of just the proliferation of services, AVOD, SVOD you know, so many services out there providing content. Um, we think that the number of players out there who are selling content and need content makes the fact that Lionsgate can produce movie and TV shows more valuable and, and as opposed to being less valuable. And the cool thing about Lionsgate is it's, it's the last sizable independent studio. And that gives it a certain amount of scarcity value um, in our mind. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about the MGM deal 
um, that Amazon's buying MGM, but we think that's kind of a proof point that um, you know there's a lot of demand for this content and people are willing to pay very, very, very high prices because of the scarcity, uh, you know, when they're when when talking about the the size of these libraries and the the, the number of players left that can actually that are independent. Um, we should also note that Blackstone paid a really nice uh, multiple for Hello Sunshine, um, a business that basically doesn't have a library. So that was just like a this they were just buying they spent nine hundred million dollars buying an existing studio with a very limited library. So our sense is that there's a room for Lionsgate to be an arms dealer to other content players. And, um, and my guess is we'll get into this in the Q&A, but our sense is that every content producer, except maybe Disney, Netflix, and potentially Warner Discovery, if that deal, when, when, and if that deal gets closed, everyone else in the world is going to need a licensed content from players like Lionsgate. And Lionsgate has a track record of, of coming up with great, you know, very successful movies and very successful shows. And so unless you have a, a just unbelievable scale um, and can just basically source your own content from, from, your, own, from your own studios, um, you're going to need a licensed content from other people. Um, and um, stars, I think we've talked, you know, you, I think if you listen to, if you listen to the way I've talked about stars already, you can hear that we have some skepticism about like what's the true value there. Does it have staying power? Does it have differentiation? But the thing to know is that it throws off a lot of cash. Um, EBITDA uh, in the U.S. is about $400 million. So, you know, generates a fair amount of EBITDA. Um, and our sense is that, you know, and, and what we, and what management has said is that they will not in, in sorry, indefinitely continue to lose money in Stars International. If they don't think they're on a pathway to getting to 50 to 60 million subs, they're going to stop spending. And so it's really not fair to capitalize those losses in perpetuity by putting a multiple on the current numbers. Uh, that's their pitch. You know, we'll see you know, how that plays out over time. I think getting back to our three pillars, business value people, um, you know, for me, the business and the people are, are really important. And I focus less and less on value because, you know, anything can be cheap, but you need a good business run by good people to make money. Um, the value is what really stands out here. Um, and we'll talk about the business and the people, but I think the sum of the parts value that we get for Lionsgate is so much higher than the current stock price that, you know, it, it, it makes you think deeply about, you know, who, who are your partners? What, you know, how good a business is this? Because it, it just, it's just so compelling that, um, you know, even if you have a little concerns about the people, um, you know, you might be able to get over that given the margin of safety. Um, so here's here's a slide um, on on their stock price performance. So um, as of a few days ago, um, th these are the B shares are down almost fifty percent over the last uh, since two thousand over the last five years. Um, and if you just think about that, the degree of underperformance versus the market, it is very very severe. And so my point there is that. Um, you know, the stock has gone from the mid 30s to 13, $14 today. That is a big drawdown over a three to four year period. And the truth is, you know, if, if, if you, the, the things that, that a company would consider after that level of underperformance over a five year period, I think are very different from if this company had been performing really well over the last five years. So it's, it's important to understand the shareholder base because as I said, people are a really important aspect of our uh, investment process. And since you do have a base kind of like a controlling shareholder here, it's, it's really key to um, understand the structure and maybe MHR's motivations and intentions. So just as a general overview, there are two share classes. There are the A shares and the B shares. The B shares are the non-voting shares. Um, and so MHR is the largest shareholder. Uh, I have some links here. Um, it, it's an interesting saga if you go back and read. Uh, MHR, MHR actually bought the shares from Carl Icahn for about $7 in back in 2011. Um, and so I'll just point out that the stock, you know, the, the stock, the, 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 the shares are what, $13, $14 today. Um, you know, it, up a fair amount from seven dollars, but that's still that's still not a, a home run at, at over a ten year period. 
So it, it's been a double, but over a 10 year period, that's not something that's not particularly special, especially since, you know, um, in 2015, MHR sold about 20% of the stake for around $33 a share. So we've seen a, a material diminution in the value of the shares that MHR owns since 2015. Uh, so MHR controls about 23.2% of the voting shares. These are the A shares. So it's not actual control it's not 50.1 percent but it is you know it, they, they do have two board members and, and Mark Chesky is on the board um it does give them a fair amount of sway on the boardroom um other key members uh of the of the shareholder base Liberty Global which is a public company has a 2.9 percent stake Liberty Global has a as a, a board member which is CEO Mike Freeze um, if, if you know anything about Liberty Global or, or Liberty Media in general, right, John, John Malone um, influenced companies, um, you know, if there's, if there's any Liberty ethos, you know, I've been investing in Liberty companies for basically since I got to Cove Street, if there's any Liberty ethos, it is find a way to monetize underappreciated assets, whether that spins, asset sales, tracking stocks, divestitures, Liberty will do it. So, I mean, I, I feel confident that um, Mike Freeze as a board member understands how to create value for shareholders. Um, and Discovery, uh, which is merging with Warner, um, you know, so it's hard to know what Discovery's role is here, but they have a 2.2% stake. Um, so what's different now? So we've mentioned the stock price and we've mentioned the, the, the pretty pathetic performance over the last five years. Um, and that the current stock price, there's a huge gap between that price and what Hasbro allegedly offered, which was $40 and where MHR sold stock in 2015, which is, which was around $33. So, I mean, we're talking about a, a big discount to that. Um, I'm not anchoring to those numbers, but I'm just making a point that, uh, you know, we're not talking about a stock that's $30 anymore. We're talking about a stock that's in the teens. Um, one thing that's happened positively at Stars is that the Stars used to be kind of just a throw-in. So if you got the cable bundle and subscribed, you know, whatever you subscribe to, or you just bought the cable bundle, they may give you Stars for a year for free, right? And so, were you really a Star Stars subscriber, or were you just there because you got it for free? Um, that is that used to be a bigger percentage of their of their customer base. Now I think it's down to about twenty percent that are kind of on promotions. And then, um, as I mentioned, now they, they now have more OTT subs than linear subs. So my sense is that to some degree, Stars is like a something that people are actively choosing to subscribe to as opposed to just getting it free with a cable bundle. Um, you know, another thing that we, we talked about a little bit, but I think library content and then the, the ability to produce content for others has, has actually become more valuable. Um, given the proliferation of content and the number of players out there who are desperate for content. Uh, it's also worth noting that the CEO and vice chairman are both four years older. Um, and these, these, are, these guys are not spring chickens anymore. And so there's always a question about like, what is their intention? You know, are they, are they gonna, you know, are they gonna be like Buffett and be in the seat until they're in their eighties? Uh, my guess is probably not. Um, and so, you know, as it's been a difficult number of years and I just think as, as people get to the late sixties, they start to think maybe a little bit about what the, the future of this company is. And so we're not saying that's necessarily a catalyst for a sale or a divestiture or a merger or of any kind, but it is possible um, that these, these guys are thinking about what the next step is. Uh, another thing to note is um, MHR, which still owns a huge chunk of this, of this stock and who's seen it go from 33 to, to 13 or 14, um, you know, their performance, probably isn't great as a result of that. And so the question is, you know, they still have outside investors. It, you know, is there any pressure whatsoever to monetize this asset? And, and we think that for the right price, you know, MHR will be, is a rational actor who will, um, you know, who will consider a very reasonable, you know, a reasonable price of some kind. And then getting to the consolidation point, I mean, how much consolidation have we seen in the industry over the last number of years? We've seen CBS and Viacom merge. We've seen Warner and Discovery about to merge. You know, Amazon's buying MGM um, at a very healthy multiple. But I, I think as the number of content players uh, dwindles, 
and the players that don't have a lot of scale in terms of the amount of, you know, the library and the content that they can put on their either their D to C or linear platforms, like there's just going to be a rush for scale. And being the last independent studio of size, I think it's, it positions Lionsgate really well. Um, and if you look at the multiples that um, D2C streaming companies have been have been receiving, especially like on a pure play basis, I mean they're they're pretty they're pretty attractive. Um, and and you know everyone wants to be part of a subscription business, and 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 of course you can't separate D2C from the from the linear TV station, the linear TV side from of stars. But our sense is that. You know, if if stars can have fifty to sixty million subscribers over the next few years, um, you know that's a very valuable D 2 C platform. So now getting to the trickiest part here, which is valuation. Um, so stock doesn't screen particularly well. Um, if you look at the stock based on consensus uh, twenty twenty two EBITDA numbers. It trades at about 12 times, um, which is not insanely expensive, but this is a business that doesn't traditionally, because of the weird cash flow dynamics of the movie studio, you know, doesn't generate a lot of cash and the cash flows are hard to predict. Um, the other thing that, that makes it complicated is that there's not really a lot of pure play public comps left for the movie studio. So we own DreamWorks when it was bought by Comcast. Um, that, that deal went out at about 4.1 times sales. Um, you know, very similar situation where we thought DreamWorks was a really good asset, great, great library, great ability to make new movies. And, and you know, you know I, I would put DreamWorks up there with Pixar as some of the best animated movies. You know, we saw an undervalued, under monetized asset and, and Comcast really value, validated that. Um, I, I think we see a very similar thing here with Lionsgate. Um, so, you know, that, that business went out at 4.1 times sales. Um, I'm not saying that Lionsgate could get that, but that would be a $15 billion enterprise value for Lionsgate. That is a big equity per share. Let's not anchor to that. I'm just pointing out that a, this is a precedent transaction of, a, you know, maybe a superior asset in some ways, but also, you know, an inferior asset in other ways because, because, because DreamWorks library is nowhere near as large. So stars, um, so remember, it was bought for $4.4 billion, um, but EBITDA is down since then. Um, not the kind of performance you want after a company, you buy a company. Uh, part of that is the international rollout of, of Stars Play. And that's been very costly and it drags down the, the profitability of the segment. Um, and so what do you comp that with? There aren't a lot of pure play comps for Stars either. Um, and so AMCX is kind of, maybe the best decent comp. And if, and if that's your comp, that's it's not very particularly attractive because AMC trades at, at less than seven times EBITDA. So if, if that's what your benchmark is, you, you know, you don't, you're certainly not getting excited about what stars is worth. Um, the other thing you see is that uh, sell side analysts are valuing these companies on like, they'll value the, the non, the non, like the linear side or, or the non D to C side, um, in one way, like at whatever, four or five times EBITDA, and then they'll put an EV per sub multiple on the D2C business. I, you know, and, and we have a chart here that shows that somebody doing that for, for AMC's um, D2C business. And yes, AMC is worth a lot more if you value it on a per sub basis, as opposed to like on a cash flow basis. You know, this reminds me of the tech bubble when, when people were pricing things based on eyeballs because they didn't, you know, because they weren't profitable or you couldn't see the profitability. So you're, you're, you're just, you're valuing it based on some kind of like, well, Netflix trades at this on an EV to sub basis. Well, we'll, we'll discount that by 50% and put that on AMC or, 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 or Stars' DTC business. Not something that I'm interested in. I mean, we really want to focus on cash flows and, and, and EBITDA um, and, 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 and other things that like there are, there's a tangible, there's a tangible cash flow or or EBITDA that you could value as opposed to just like you know some kind of subscription or eyeball number. Um, one of the complicating factor here, as I mentioned, this company has a fair amount of debt and there's uh, almost 180 million dollars of interest expense. And so if you look at their income statement, getting to the point of why this doesn't screen particularly well is like you know you'll see you'll see uh, net income losses because of that. And like I. I, I, I'm not, I, I certainly don't love as much debt as on, as, as on this business. I think it's a manageable amount, but for sure, free cash flow is being, is being reduced by the interest expense. And it makes the income statement very hard to, to get excited about. 
And then lastly, accounting for films and TV programs is complicated. Uh, it's very hard to predict cash flows. You have big amortization charges as well as you know a distribution and marketing costs through through the theatrical side. It's also a hit-driven business, so you can have a really big movie one year or a very big licensing of a movie one year, and then that rolls off. And so it's really hard to know uh, what kind of run rate, run rate cash flows are going to look like. Um, and so what that means is that this, this is not a business you can do a DCF on. Um, it just it doesn't it doesn't make any sense on the DCF and neither did DreamWorks, by the way. Um, it's not, I'm not you know, benchmarking or anchoring to that, but but for sure, neither did DreamWorks. So one interesting tidbit before we move on into like the nuts and bolts of our valuation is something I'd never actually seen before, um, which was that a board member by the name of Gordy Crawford, who was a former uh, PM at Capital Group, which is a very large investment manager here in Los Angeles. He did a call um, with the JP Morgan sell side analyst. So I'd never seen a board member get on a call and basically do what he did, which was walk the audience through how he would value Lionsgate. And so recall, this is a mid-teen stock, and he put, publicly put a $33 per share some of the parts value out there. And so, you know, obviously he's biased to some degree because he's on the board and he and he's been aggressively buying shares. I mean, he's bought in shares, sorry, he's bought shares um, aggressively since August of 2020. You can see the number of shares here on the chart I have um, on the slide, but he's bought the B shares as high as 1570, which is higher than the current price. Um, but this is a guy who goes on a call with a, with a sell side analyst saying the stock's worth $33. Um, that's a big difference between the, that and between the current stock price and, and what he thinks it's worth. Uh, but I think more indicative or more interesting than the numbers he put out there or the analysis he gave us is more like the fact that management would allow a board member to come on and talk about how unbelievably undervalued they think the stock is, is suggestive to me that the management team is thinking about the stock price and is thinking about potentially monetizing assets. Um, another thing that we need to talk about is MGM uh, because it, it's, Everyone, I think, is it's really easy to rush to the MGM valuation and be like, oh my God, put this, put this on Lionsgate. We, you know, look how much Lionsgate's worth. But I think it's worth looking at these two businesses and saying, like, okay, how similar are they? Um, so no content company is the same, but it's worth comparing the $8.45 billion that Amazon's paying for, for MGM versus what you get would get at Lionsgate. So both libraries, and this is like a total coincidence, but both libraries have about 17,000 titles. Um, I think Lionsgate would argue that they have a larger library of newer films. Like MGM has a lot of older titles from like the 50s and 60s that are black and white. And, you know, how do you monetize that today is a good question. So uh, Lionsgate's given us some stats. Like if you look at wider release movies, which, which I think means like theatrical, you know, over the last decade, Lionsgate's put out 121 versus 44 for MGM. Um, the box office for those is like six and a half billion over a decade versus 3.1 billion for MGM and total movies over the last decade, 704 for Lionsgate and 159 for MGM. So, you know, no library is the same, but I would argue that a newer library has more monetizable content. That's something that's like, you know, for sure the Bond franchise is really valuable. Um, but let's remember that MGM doesn't even control the Bond franchise. Like there's, there's the, 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 the there's like an outside controlling, not controlling, but, but an outside influence there that has some control over the bond franchise. And so you don't have those problems at Lionsgate. Um, and then also uh, MGM owned Epix. Um, I would argue that Stars is a better pro platform than Epix just because Stars is a premium subscription product. Um, I would also, you know, I would also say that Lionsgate's TV business is better than MGM's. So the ability to continue to produce hit content for other TV players, I think is, is probably better at Lionsgate. Um, but there's also, there was also some, some talk that MGM's library has been under monetized and that Amazon may be able to find ways to unlock value, ways to monetize that. And that's why the valuation looks so high. Um, you know, because because Amazon's baking in a way to monetize certain assets. Um, so Gordy Crawford, when he did the presentation with JP Morgan, he said basically, if if, if MGM is worth 8.45 billion, um, you know, then there's no way Lionsgate is not worth that much um, on an on an EV basis. 
And if you just put that number on, and again, I'm not going to anchor to it because it's not a perfect comp, but if you put that number on Lionsgate, it's $26 a share. Um, so we're about to get into the valuation. I, I promised you this would be fun. Um, so some caveats before that. Um, you know, it's a pretty difficult company to value. As I said, the MGM multiple may not be applicable. Um, you know, if, you, if you're willing to adjust STARS international losses, you know, you are, at least in the short run, overvaluing that business if you're ignoring the losses they're generating. Um, the other thing to note is that STARS and, and Legacy Lionsgate, which were, were merged together in 2017, yeah, may, maybe it's going to be, maybe you can't split them up so nicely. Um, one of the reasons why for that is that the stars content, sorry, the Lionsgate content is continuing to migrate onto the stars platform. So if, if I'm subscribing to stars as, as, as Lionsgate's licenses are rolling off other places, um, you know, stars is picking up that content. And so they become even more intertwined over time. Um, and, and the other thing I mentioned is you have to be, be careful about double counting the library revenue because it's that library revenue includes TV and motion picture. And so you, and, and you don't know what, what proportion. So it just, it makes it the whole valuation a little more squirrely. Our, you know, our research suggests and, and, and our, our nose for value suggests that this is a special situation um, that this time is different and that there's a clear desire at Lionsgate to close the gap between the share price and the company's estimate of intrinsic value. Uh, but we don't like to invest solely based on a sale. I think that's a fool, fool's errand. Like you name me any company and I can come up with some reason why it should be sold. But the base rates, just think about if you own a 30 stock portfolio, you know, how many of your stocks are going to get bought over a year, right? It's not a hundred percent and it's probably one or two stocks, if that in a small cap portfolio. So the base case is that most of your portfolio is not going to get bought. So I think you should start with the, from the, like the idea that there are multiple ways to make money. A, the sum of the parts value is really high. So if, so if there was a buyer, we'll make money. But also there's internal momentum that can improve cash flows and margins and returns in a way that, that gets you a higher stock price. And so in this case, um, you know, Stars has a number of, sorry, Stars and Lionsgate have a number of things going for, it, for them. One is the continued growth of the TV production segment. They just continue to pump out new content that they, they license to other TV players. Um, you know, what happens with Stars? Like if stars does become profitable and they can get to 50 to 60 million subs, um, that's, that's a totally different story. And all of a sudden people have a very different perception about what stars is worth. Or, you know, the losses continue for a, a certain period of time. They're not getting the traction they see. And then all of a sudden they turn off the spigot. And all of a sudden when that happens, you see stars being a much more profitable business again, and then hence potentially a higher valuation. Uh, also clearly, both theatrical production of new films and the theatrical presentation of films has been disrupted by COVID. And so the question is, you know, what, what does, what does revenue and, and cash flow look like in the, in the theatrical segment, the motion picture segment, you know, if, and when, you know, COVID is not as much of a, a part of our daily lives. Uh, I, I think the important thing to remember though, is that if the stock were 20, $25, you know, all of these things would be really concerning and they are concerning as, but I just think the margin of safety you get um, given the sum of the parts value protects you a fair amount from, from further downside. So here's our, our valuation. Um, as I said, three pillars, business value people. Um, we've talked about the business. We've talked about the people, the value here, you know, and, and I say this with a fair amount of trepidation is the, va the value here is what got me excited. I'm still about, you know, I still, I'm still the guy who started my career reading Ben Graham's book. So I, I, I am attracted to, to, to undervalued, underappreciated securities. Um, but, my, but I do like to invest in businesses that are getting more valuable every day. And I, I have a, a fair amount of conviction. We have a fair amount of conviction at Cove Street that the motion picture and TV production business is, like, is getting more valuable over time. Stars, maybe a little bit of a question mark. Um, so if you look at our valuation me methodology, it assumes the A shares and B shares are treated the same in a deal. That may not be the case. We have seen situations before where the B shares are, are sold, like control is sold to a, another party at a premium to where the, at a huge premium and, and the, that, that, that where, the, where the, the A shares wouldn't get that premium. So that's a caveat you need to be careful of um, about like how this, who the buyer is and how this gets transacted. 
but we're assuming just for this first simplicity that the A shares and the B shares get treated the same on a per share basis. Um, so the, the, the methodology is first you value the library, which as I mentioned, includes TV and motion picture content. And when you just value the library, it basically assumes that the, the, the existing studios are worth nothing more than the past content. So it's basically zero value for any future growth in cash flows from the library. So just you, you take a print of $740 million today, that's, that's what the library generates. And it doesn't, and that excludes a lot of other revenue. But just to be conservative, let's just value the library. Um, and, and, and to my point, Gordy Crawford, when he did his presentation, put a $1.5 billion value on the TV business outside of the library. So, you know, that's, that's another, what, that's another, what, six or $7 a share, uh, um, if that's the case. So, but we're not going to do that. We're trying to be really conservative here because this is complicated. Um, and so as we're valuing the library, the press reported number for the library um, on, on the MGM Amazon deal was 20 times. Um, we think that's a pretty aggressive multiple and that may not even be, that may not be replicated. So we're gonna use 12 times, which is um, you know 12 times a, a cash flow number, um, which is I think probably pretty conservative, but uh, given that most of this is free cash flow, uh, or I mean, it's, it's all basically all free cash flow, um, are the numbers we're using and, and there's no there's no capex associated with it and this is just like licensing revenue um, so in our base case we're using 12 times in our upside case we're using 15 times so that's for the motion so that's for the library the second step is to value stars um, in our base case we add back half the losses because uh, we don't think it's fair to capitalize those losses in perpetuity um, for stars so we, we we add back half the international losses and we apply an eight multiple and then our upside case, we exclude all of the losses and we put an eight and a half multiple on it. That's a slight premium to AMCX, um, which we think stars is a, is a better business. Um, and then, the, you know, it's always so hard to figure out what to do with corporate GNA. Um, you know, we, we put in our base case, we put a seven X on it, assuming that there would be some synergies with, with a buyer, right? Someone would be able to cut costs or be duplicative, you know, arrangements of some kind. Um, and in our upside case, we value the corporate, uh, the corporate segment, which is a negative value at five times. So that gets down to the, uh, the um, you know, maybe the most important thing for, for what people are interested in, and that's our SOT, SOTP value. So given all that I just, all those caveats I just gave and all the methodology that I just laid out, um, our base case is $18. Um, but remember that that values the, the future revenue from the studios basically at zero. Um, and it capitalizes $70 million in stars losses into it. Uh, and then it, it also uses a, a multiple that's that's what 60% of what Amazon paid for, for MGM's library. Um, if you're just a little more aggressive and, and put a 15 multiple on the, on, the, on the library, as opposed to the 20, you get 2750. Um, and, and, but still like we're just valuing the library and it, 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 it values a future revenue from the studios at zero. So both of these are lower than what Gordy Crawford put out there. Um, I think what you're seeing is even in our base case scenario, there's decent upside being pretty conservative about valuations. And then you've got a multi-bagger opportunity um, if, if our upside case comes to fruition. So where can we be wrong? I mean, if I haven't already, you know, argued against myself enough, I'm, I'm gonna do it more. Um, you know, I think the short points here are the leverage is too high and it'll eventually be a problem. Uh, the second one is what Amazon is paying for MGM is not a relevant benchmark whatsoever. Just it's just the libraries are not comparable. And you know, I think there's a there's a some risk that this deal doesn't even get done because it has to get through an FTC review. So we'll see if this Amazon MGM deal even gets done. Um, and if it doesn't get done, then like who cares what Amazon was willing to pay because it was never going to deal and didn't even get through the the, the regulators. Um, the other short point, and I, I've talked about this, is Stars is a subscale business that gets less valuable every day, and management will continue to throw money at it regardless. Like management has a higher view of Stars than I think we do. They they have a lot more data on it, and they can see the numbers. But you know, I think to be conservative, we are assuming that Stars is a not a melting ice cube, but not something that is not quickly melting ice cube, but not something that's getting more valuable. Um, another good point, which is brought up over and over again, is that no single buyer wants Stars and Legacy Lionsgate. Um, I think that's that's a fair criticism um, that you know that you could see people who want stars or want the studio, but who wants both together? Um, 
Obviously, MHR is a huge wild card here. What is Richeski's desire to monetize assets? Is is, is he a never sell bro? And he's you know he'll he'll hold this till it's a dollar and you know in twenty twenty eight. You know I I we don't think so. But he you know he he can he holds a lot he holds a lot of sway in the boardroom. And so even if someone offered twenty two dollars, which if you bought it today you'd probably be pretty happy with, Richeski might turn that down because he thinks it's thinks it's worth forty. Um, Another thing that to think about is that Lionsgate is running out of potential partners. I don't know how many, you know, there's been so much consolidation already. What else could get through regulatory is a good question. You know, who, who still wants more scale and to buy, you know, to, who would be interested in this, this library. And especially if you listen to the, the Biden administration, how they want to crack down on consolidation, you know, it's a, it's a good question about, you know, what, what, who, who the buyer is and, and, and whether they could even get approved by the regulators. Uh, the other thing we hear a lot of is that, that Feldheimer, who's the CEO and Vice Chairman Burns, are, you know, this is their baby and they really have built it into what it is today and they're never going to let anyone control it and, and they can use, they can basically help, like Richeski can help them block any suitors. Um, and so that, that's why having two share classes is often, and in this case, I think problematic. And then the last thing we hear, and this is a very backward looking thing, and I think it's what, why, why we want people to start th thinking about it and take a look at it and maybe rethinking what they thought about this company is that, yeah, over the years, this, this company has been quote unquote cheap on a, some of the parts best basis, but so what, right? They've never monetized it. You know, there's, you know, it's, it's just been a roller coaster. You know, there've been ups and downs and, and over the last five years, the stock's down almost 50%. So, you know, it's been cheap a lot during that period of time. So what? Yep. Um, so I'm going to close there, um, just provide, and then we're going to jump into Q&A quickly. I'll provide my contact information. Um, happy to talk to people about this. I understand. I, I, it's not like I look for stocks that are battleground stocks, but somehow to be a value investor right now, you have to have a really, you know, I think you, you, there's, there's a, there's a need to be somewhat of a contrarian and to, to look at businesses that people are discarding and look deeper and say, well, what, what are people missing? So uh, I'm like, always happy to hear comments and feedback. Um, you know, I'm just getting smarter on Lionsgate. We're just getting smarter on Lionsgate. Um, there's a there's just there's a lot of things that can that 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 we would you know, we would love to know. Some of which will just play out over time. But um, I'm always like, happy to take people's questions. So you can find me on on bclaremont at coastreetcapital.com. You can also follow me at Twitter. I don't have any, anywhere near the number of, of uh, followers that Srivatsan has, um, but you can follow me at Ben Claremont on Twitter. Um, and then I, here's my shameless podcast pl plug. Um, we just started a, a podcast at Coach Street called Compounders, where we uh, interview public company CEOs um, about how they build their businesses. So we basically just wrapped up season one, which will include 12 episodes. We had two Fortune 500 CEOs on. We've already booked a Fortune 500 CEO for um, season two, which will start in a couple months. Um, but uh, I'd love for people to give it a try. Um, we think that something's a little bit different where you have an investor-led interview um, of public company CEOs, basically allowing people to be a fly on the wall for what, for what Cove Street's diligence process looks like. Um, and with that shameless plug, I will hand it back to you, Srivatsan, and we'll get into some Q&A. Yeah, I think that was a fantastic presentation. So number one, thank you for, you know, putting that together. And I think, you know, it was really well executed as well. So, you know, just to keep, I wanted to keep the Q&A short so that, you know, people don't end up falling asleep. <laughs> but so I wanted to start off by, you know, talking a little bit about stars and I guess the economics of stars. So, you know, people, I guess, clearly don't have, I guess, uh, yeah, sort of infinite money to go ahead and subscribe to entertainment. So you know, how is Stars going to be able to maintain, you know, this share of, a, of the consumer's wallet when it has to compete with, you know, other uh, services like Disney Plus, uh, Prime, you know, HBO Max, uh, you know, Netflix. And, you know, a lot of people have criticized Netflix on the same grounds, you know, this increasing competition, you know, yeah, there's, there's also different type of content services as well. And, and, you know, people have criticized Netflix as what used to be, you know, evaluation uh, that was very high, especially from, say, you know, a traditional PE metric standpoint. But then just coming back to stars, you know, how is stars going to cope up with uh, cope up with that and maintain your know, consumer wallet shares, uh, considering the competition that surrounds it? I think that's a great question. And it's our largest concern with stars. As, as you if you were in our investment meetings, you would hear me being like, 
who cares about stars? Like, why is anyone going to subscribe to stars? Like if I could, if I could have Disney plus for what a four ninety nine, dollars I don't know, maybe they raised the price to $6.99, whatever, or Netflix, like there's a lot more content there. It's really, I mean, it's really deep. And so it, it's a genuine concern and I'm going to give you management's pitch. And I, I don't know how much I, I don't know how much value I, I will subscribe to this, but it, it, to some of it, to some extent, it's true that Stars is more of a niche project product. So they describe Netflix as like a general entertainment subscription service, and that Netflix is trying to be everything to everyone. Right? They have documentaries, they have movies, they have TV shows, they have animation, they have kids. Right? So you have. Netflix has everything and Disney plus in a lot of ways has everything stars is more of a niche um, product. And so um, particularly focused at um, Latin, Latinx and um, African-American um, subscribers. Uh, this is domestically um, the power show is, is kind of like the, on stars is kind of like their scripted series that, 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 you know, it's, it's their game of Thrones, obviously not quite as popular as game of Thrones, but you know, there's been all these spinoffs and, and, and so, you know, they have a focused niche that they think is very loyal to the platform and to the content. So that's, that's their approach. And so to some extent, I'm happy to hear that they don't think that they're a competitor to Netflix, because if they did, that would be a little scary. So they are trying to segment the market. And so, you know, it's funny, I'm, I was just listening to uh, reviewing one of the episodes that, that we're going to release from on, our, on my podcast for next week. And the CEO there told a story about how the founder of this company started a newspaper back in the, I don't know, late 1800s. Um, because there was only one newspaper in the city and it only catered to the rich people. And so he, 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 he's like, there's an entire population of people who could, who are, who could be interested in this, in, in a different kind of newspaper. And there's only one it's for the rich people. So he created it. And now it's a, whatever, it's a $2 billion company, right? 140 years later. But my point is that there is value in segmentation. Um, and so that's the pitch. I have my general concerns about just the proliferation of the cost of, of the unbundling, right? So now you need internet plus, um, you know, plus D Disney, Netflix, HBO, Amazon Prime subscription. How much money do people have to spend on content? And so that's, it is a genuine concern. It is reflected in the valuation that we, that we put on stars, I think. Um, given the cash flow profile, given the margin profile of that business are, are still very attractive, at least on the domestic side, you know, we are concerned um, and, you know, it's up to management to prove us wrong. And then very quickly in international, it's a good question. Like, you know, you're competing with, with so many players who are also going internationally, right? Like if, if Netflix is, is just penetrating more and more and Disney plus is rolling out internationally everywhere, like, how in the world is the international subscriber? What, what does an international subscriber know about stars, by the way? It, I mean, mainly it's the content that you get from Lionsgate um, that's going to be embedded there. Uh, their point on that is that, the company's point on that is that they were an early mover in international. They've been doing this for a few years and they actually have kind of like a, 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 a very good base of subscribers to build off of. We will see how sticky those people are when the competition comes. But our, our genuine point here is that if you look at our valuation from star from stars or four stars, you know it's way less than they what they paid in 2016, which is you know you would think that it should, if it were becoming more valuable every day, it'd be more than worth more than 4.4 billion. So the other question that I had, uh, which I wanted to ask, and to wrap up the podcast with that. You said that, you know, LGF is sort of a, situ a special situation. And, you know, you mentioned that Gordy Crawford, the board member at LGF, what he said was that the company was massively undervalued. And I guess management as a whole shares that view. So could you explain, you know, how, uh, how you know, uh, how's the gap between what management thinks uh, the company's worth versus where we're trading at now? How is that gap going to be closed, considering that most acquirers are not going to want stars, uh, we talked about stars, stars being the weak point in the company. So, uh, so you know, how how is management going to close the gap between where what it's worth versus where it's trading at right now? 
considering that most people uh, would not want to control stars. It, it's a totally fair point. Um, and to, to Gordy's credit, if you listen to that call, he's, he listed a number of different acquirers and he, he, he said, for every one of these, I could come up with a reason why they wouldn't buy Lionsgate. And I think a lot of those players, the reason is they wouldn't want stars or that they would value the studio side um, um, for the TV production, the movie production really high, but then they wouldn't want stars and so they value it low. And so then you wouldn't get someone who'd be willing to pay what management thinks this company's worth. Yep. Uh, so I, I think it's a, it, it is a very good point. And so the question is, what are they gonna do? And so here, here's, here's the way that we're thinking about this. And, and to some extent, part of investing is it required some, you know, pontification and opining on what people are thinking and who, like the people involved, what are they, what are their incentives? And so if you look at the, the strategic committee on the board, this is the group of people who's tasked with considering strategic alternatives and yep. finding ways to create value for shareholders. Mm -hmm. You have Gordy Crawford, who's an investor like us and who was, you know, at the capital group for a really long time, obviously knows how to make money as you know, for shareholders, right? Because that's 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 kind of like <laughs> that, that's what he was. He was a shareholder for all those years. Right. Then you have Mike Fries of Liberty, right? You have two guys who you know, and, and I have no no qualms about um, saying that Mike Fries, given his Liberty ethos and DNA, knows how to create value for shareholders. So you've got two guys who understand how to create value for shareholders and can be creative about it. So here's here's the options. One. Best set base best case scenario probable for these guys is that you don't sell. Mm -hmm. Is that stars just you know just does really well, gets 50 to 60 million subs, profitability comes way up, and all of a sudden people have a complete revaluation of of a the whole company, but b specifically stars. Right? I think that I, I think these guys would stay in the seat if if you told me the stock was $35 tomorrow they, of course they would stay in the seat because they've created a lot of value they get to you know they get all, you know, they get their nice salaries and and all of that stuff um so i think that's the best case scenario i don't i i'm not saying that the first and only option for this company is a sale i'm suggesting that when you when the stock has been down 50% over almost 50% over the last 5 years like things are on the table that may not have been yeah. and so what what could that look like well um could a divestiture of stars outright maybe be in, in the cards, potentially, right? You could sell stars, delever, improve the balance sheet substantially, right? And so the, if there's a debt overhang at all, or if there's an interest, and then and there is an interest cost overhang when it comes to free cash flow, that would be ameliorated. Um, and so that, that might appease people a little bit. Um, and it also might make them even more attractive as a as like a pure play studio. So right. that is one thing, you know, I'm not saying that's going to happen. Um, I don't, it's, it's, there's a, there's a lot of moving pieces here and it tell me, and cause tell me who the buyer is. Um, the other thing to think about is maybe the best thing they can do if they're right, if they're right, that stars is a legitimate product and has a niche that is durable and people actually actively seek it out as opposed to just, you know, whatever, being part of a package then they probably should be spending all the money they can to get to 50 to 50 to 60 million subs because clearly wall street likes subscription businesses and really likes you know kind of ddc streaming businesses so um you know that is the, i think you have to have confidence that the people are a focused on 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 closing the gap between intrinsic value and stock price and b are not just going to burn money in something that is you know, just a total, total it's just a, a total waste Absolutely. when you think when you think about the 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 the, um, the competitive landscape. So I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, as I said, I think there are multiple ways to win here. You don't need a sale, and I don't I don't know who the buyer is, and I don't I I, I could throw out some wild speculations out there, and 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 when I when I talk about one of my other securities that that is also a special situation, Lumen, I do speculate wildly. I, I don't feel comfortable doing that here, but I will say that um, there's a scarcity value to the studio that we think provides a huge margin of safety relative to the current, you know, the, 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 the value of that studio provides a huge margin of safety relative to the current stock price. Um, and in the meantime, we should see improving trends that help 
improve the profitability and the returns of this business. Um, and so you might just get a re-rating based on that. Um, but in the meantime, the downside is relatively low. That's how we've looked at it. But again, it's a special situation. And for me personally, um, I don't know that I want to wait around and just hope that management does the right thing. We will take information as it comes at us. The company has been has hired a new IR guy who's great, um, and he is out there, you know, getting the story out. But also, you know, you know, this Gordy Crawford call like that is something you don't see other companies do because they they want to get this they want to they want to they want to highlight how undervalued the security is. You know, I think that means people are aligned. Um, you know, Rocheski owns a lot of stock. Um, Burns and Felt Feltheimer own five, five, six million shares. I mean, this is real money for people, right? So I think we are highly aligned towards a higher stock price. Um, but you know, the path there is uncertain, and we're trying to we're trying to be in a position where we can win, you know, regardless of 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 whether it's sold or not. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And you know, you made that case towards the end of your presentation as well. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to have one thing happen to win. You know, you could win in many different ways. So, you know, with that, you know, Ben, thank you so much for an incredible presentation and you know, incredible uh, the sort of description of, you know, uh, of the long case for Lionsgate. And, you know, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I think we had, where we had, I had a lot of fun and I had, I learned a lot. And so I'm you know, probably going to go look into LGF over the weekend. So, <laughs> so thank you for yeah. being on. Yeah, well, th thanks for having me. Um, it's a great discussion. Um, thanks for giving me the platform to talk about one of our newest holdings. Uh, and again, like, please, I'd, I'd love to hear people's feedback on the presentation because I can only get smarter when I hear other, you know, when I hear from other smart investors. Yep. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe, and we'll see you next time.